Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 33 of Yoga Land. Before I get started with today's episode, I want to thank my iTunes reviewers. I haven't thanked you in a while, so I want to do that. And, you know, it's not actually easy to figure out how to do the iTunes review. You have to click the ratings and reviews tab, and I think you have to do it on your desktop, not mobile. And I don't even think you can be a subscriber and still do a review. So first of all, I appreciate those of you who leave reviews for just making the time and putting in the effort. iTunes does not not make it super easy. And then of course, it also really keeps me going and it helps with the podcast's ranking in iTunes. So real quick, I want to thank Meta Jag, Penguinasana, Shirley Ben, Gypsy Granny, Jamie Redinger, Crystal Markham, Ordale 22, Jackie Dominus, Trenton Boulevard. I love that because I grew up near New, New Jersey. JLS 364, Peace Yoga Heather. This is another good one. Vinny Vegas, Feo One, Kumarito, Meanest Look, Liana Blah, Jenna Zavril, and Yoga, Jen Nemart, Mel Jang, and Heidi Eldred. Heidi said, listening to the Yoga Land podcast is like I'm having coffee with friends and we're talking about everything yoga. And quite honestly, this is exactly what I was hoping for when I started the podcast. I was hoping it would feel just like a natural conversation that you guys are, are, are in on as well. So I really, really appreciated that review. I want yoga to be a part of our regular everyday conversation. I want it to be relevant to our lives and something that we think about and talk about in a way that doesn't feel overly precious or overly sentimental or like we're going to make a mistake <laughs> because we're not, you know, well-versed on every single sacred text. On today's episode, I talked to Bex Urban about going on retreat. Bex is a Bay Area yoga teacher and Pilates instructor, and you can find classes with her online at yogaanytime.com. I just want to say, before I get into more about this topic, I want to say that I recently was laughing at myself because I, I made a list of my upcoming topics, and it was so dark that I read it to Jason. It went like this. Depression, anger, more empathy, fear, and death. And we had a good laugh because um, I can just really go to the dark places sometimes because I, I think I'm a person who looks for a lot of meaning and questions meaning in life. So for those of you who are with me and you like the deep thoughts, those, are, those topics are coming soon and they're in the works. But for today, we're going to talk about another form of self-care and self-study, and that is going on a yoga retreat. So I singled Bex out as a good person to talk to about retreats because for new teachers, the thought of leading a retreat can be daunting. The thought of creating the programming for a retreat and filling a retreat and marketing the retreat can be very daunting. And over the years, over about a decade, more than a decade, I think, Bex has really figured out a formula that works for her in terms of how often she does them, how long they are where she does them. And she's a mother of three small children. So she has a lot on her plate and she has really successful retreats. So for those of you new teachers out there, or if you're new to the idea of creating a retreat, this episode will be of particular interest to you. I think there are some risks to leading a retreat and this episode might help you mitigate those risks and reap the rewards. And then for those of you who are students and consider considering going on retreat, this is a conversation you'll want to hear too. And I want to just take a moment to read a few paragraphs from one of my uh, teachers, Sarah Powers, on the importance of going on retreat. Because I think sometimes we forget. We think like, oh, I do my weekly yoga classes and I don't know if I want to spend the money. I don't know if I want to take the time. I don't know if it's worth it for me to just kind of go on a spa day for a few days doing yoga. But really, that is not the original intention of retreat. So I think Sarah says it really well. She is someone who I used to do day-long silent retreats with, and I would come out just feeling like a new human. So she says, on retreats, we have the opportunity to slow down our days and see ourselves and everything more clearly. 
We often uncover not only what habits are destructive and learn how to work skillfully with them, but are also encouraged to attend to that which is pulsing softly within us under all the noise or numbness. Sufis call this primordial aspect our hidden essence. Taoists call it the tranquility at the center of all storms, the Tao. Hindus say the self or Brahman. Buddhists refer to this as our Buddha nature, while others say inner spirit or God. Skillful dedication to a yogic path of awareness uncovers this intrinsic inner dimension, teaching us about the suffering inherent in our perceived, not actual, disconnection from wholeness. In inner silence and increased stillness, we often glimpse and learn to sustain a truth larger than our self-definitions allow. The yogic path is a gradual process involving self-investigation and skillful means. Daily practice helps us become aware of the habits which perpetuate our inner rigidity or chaos, while longer retreats, which emphasize meditation, loving friendliness, social science, social silence, and continual mindfulness throughout the day, teach us how to sustain a simple and kind presence. Removed from our daily activities and responsibilities, we learn to interrupt the habits of our conditioned patterns through compassionate attention, freeing us to live from a larger truth and authentic clarity of being. This is why this woman was my teacher for so long. She's just amazing, and it makes me want to makes me want her to be closer by again so I can study with her more. So one of the other things I want to say before the episode begins is that if you feel like you don't have the time or you don't have the means, you can do shorter retreats. And that's an option that Bex throws out there with her, with her system. So enjoy the episode. I want to start by just having you paint a picture of what your retreat is like. You know, a lot of people will do like a week-long retreat. You do shorter retreats, which I think is a really great approach. So can you tell me a little bit about your retreats? So my retreats begin on a Friday. Students arrive between three and four and class resumes at like 4.30 that evening. We have a dinner. We get together and have an opening circle. It's brief. And yet it lays an open um, platform for connection without feeling like therapy. And I'm really clear about that. So people introduce themselves and they say maybe one or two things why they're there. And yet you don't get anyone's story. Okay. Interesting. That's sort of something I talk about that people can unpack as the weekend goes. And yet when you arrive, I almost want you to release the layers of what you call yourself. And often I read a poem about unnaming and there are all these ways that we name ourselves. And this is a weekend where we just get to be with ourselves. So like drop the story a little bit when they first get there. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then how do you set up the schedule for your retreats? Like how, how much yoga do you do versus other things? So they arrive, they have a class, dinner, a little meditation and a circle, and then the evening. And then in the morning on Saturday is an offering of a guided meditation. And it's also an offering of for those people who want to be quiet to move into a totally silent breakfast. Oh, nice. Right. So for someone who isn't into that, they could definitely stay inward, right? And they could stay inward from even meditation through breakfast through practice, through there's a big gap in the middle of the day. And in that gap in the middle of the day, I bring massage therapists that I basically checked out. And I also bring an intuitive. And those are additions and they're totally optional. And when people say, well, what does the intuitive do? Like, why would I want to see one? I basically have had this like accessory, this special part of the retreat, because it adds for a lot of people, some kind of cohesiveness. And she is a woman who I have worked with for a long time. She's had a spiritual center since the seventies. Anyway, she mentored me for a while and now she attends my classes. So it's, it's a real, she gets what I do. Yeah. And then people are in a little bit more open. They've had two yoga classes in 12 hours, right? At this point, And they're removed from 
their cell phone and their world. I mean, there is, if you dig deep in the retreat center, you can find Wi-Fi. I strongly encourage people to sort of back away from that. And yet I'm not going to tell someone that they need to give me their phone. I have not been the person phone in the bag. Yeah. So the retreat starts on Friday. It, uh, the last class is on Sunday. Yeah. So Friday after their morning and their break, which they can do what they want, there's another evening class. Then there's dinner. And then we do like a magic ceremony. It's different every time. And within that, at that point, that third class, I've weaved in some, I'd say, tales about gods and goddesses, some little tokens for everyone. I build an altar, uh, talk about what it's like to build an altar. Uh, I talk about sage and Palo Santo and how clearing and grounding are part of the weekend. And they're a part of the weekend that you can extract and take home with you as a reminder. So I encourage people when they're walking the grounds, if they see like a special rock or something that they will be able to physically bring with them home to cultivate that. Yeah. So then on Friday, they have that circle. And then given, I mean, on Saturday, they have that other circle and we do some other magical things. And then on Sunday morning, there's another offering of meditation. This one is spent more in silence. And yet I know when to sort of chime in and say, like, let's rein it in. And on that day, we go right into practice. So people who didn't meditate just show up in the room. We go right into practice. Usually at that point, people are like, oh, I wish there was another day. You know, right then, you know, I'm getting steeped in everything. I really feel like I'm letting go. And then we have brunch and we do a closing circle. And it's the magic has happened and you've, you're off. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You kind of leave them wanting more. Yes. Yeah. So if the, if people don't opt into the massage or the intuitive, is it just kind of quiet time or are there other activities they can do on the grounds? On the grounds, there is hiking. Each cottage has a deck so people could sit on their decks. There's also a beautiful mandala, like a little circle within the trees. And there's, there's a hike to the beach. Some people who are really into meditation, take that time. And I offer them to do walking meditation. I I definitely instruct like this is the difference between seated grounding cultivation of meditation and walking meditation. And this is what it looks like. And some people do come to me and say, Hey, I want to talk about this. I, I, I make myself available when I'm not running around and making sure this person's showing up for that massage and that person's going there because I don't have an assistant. And yet those five hours in the middle of the day are really restorative, really restful. I have sometimes offered like a very advanced practice for some people who are like, oh my God, I just can't get enough yoga. I want more. Yeah. Other times I've said, you know what? I know you guys want more. And yet I think we all could benefit from the slowness, the beauty that comes. So I'm not offering it this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm think I'm just sitting here thinking about how sweet it is that you're teaching so much meditation and how your parents must be so proud because they raised you doing meditation with you. Yeah, you know, my father is the pioneer of that. My mom I think has that Zen inside of her. She wouldn't sit and she doesn't really need to sit. And I can totally relate to that with my dad. Like I get up and at 5.30, this morning it was 5.12 and I sit. And the reason I sit is it really sets a tone for my day. And throughout, if I were to look back throughout my life, meditation has always been there, whether it was in the form of running or athletics. And yet as I'm aging younger toward death, let's say (laughs) the benefit of just sitting with myself, even if my mind is super busy, it's really, it's my investment in myself. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. So how do you market them in terms of like, how do you get your intention for the retreat across 
And I'm also wondering, is it mostly women who join you on your retreats? And do you like consciously cultivate that or not? I'm not sure. So that's a great inquiry because just today I was mentioning that I have a couple spots in my March retreat. And I said, and I said this yesterday to a totally different group, men are welcome. And sometimes I feel like men think, oh, this is all for women. And in the past 11 years of my retreats, uh, the first retreat I led, I believe there were three men. The most men I've had on a retreat is six. So yes, you're outnumbered if you're a male. If I get to a certain like tipping point of women, I might say to someone, I have to think, "Mm, not so great idea for you to bring a guy. Oh yeah. If there's that many women, you know, if there's, if the critical mass is that way. Um, and I want it to be about a balanced way of people moving through it. I want the energy of the yin and the yang. And I do feel like if there aren't the masculine guys there, if there aren't guys there, it shows up in the group. Mm -hmm. The last retreat I led was all women. And there was some serious feminine, divine wisdom that showed up that had there been someone else, maybe not. And I do notice that for the most part, women are there. They're the first ones to sign up and they want to bring their friends. And as far as marketing goes, since that was like the spirit of your question, I feel like when I started in 2006 and it was 12 people, I co-led the retreat. And in my mind, I thought, if you 12 people told one friend, I would be so jazzed because that would make the group double, or maybe half of you wouldn't come, but then I'd have 18. And I want people to naturally find the retreat. And I do find that the people who come, it really is a cohesive group. It really is energetically I have been so fortunate. I have roomed women together that go on vacation. I'm excited, <laughs> but become friends. And they like, I put two women last retreat together. They're neighbors. They didn't even know each other. I didn't know they were neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. would you say it took you to feel really confident in leading retreats? Because I would imagine there's somewhat of a learning curve. I would say by the fourth retreat, I felt like I had some stride. And you do two a year, right? Or you were doing two a year at that time. I was doing two a year. The first year I did one in the spring and then I did them after that, more consistently every six months, pretty much. Okay. And okay. I co-led them. I co-led them for the first six or seven, I'd say. But I was doing all the administration. But that's a smart way to do it. If you're a little nervous um, about doing your own and taking on that full responsibility of like filling the retreat and doing all the teaching and stuff, you could pair up with someone and, and do it like co-lead, as you said, is that kind of why you did it? Yeah. And we had done our first one together and we taught so differently that there was like a compliment and yet, uh, a difference. And so we got a blended like student. Yeah. 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 And what do you, what do you get as a teacher from teaching a retreat that you don't get from teaching just a regular weeknight or weekday or weekend class? Like, what do you walk away feeling? I feel a level of connection with the student. And I wouldn't say it's like a personal friendship, deep friendship, but I would say that when I teach, I'm usually going from a class to a client or I'm moving to my next 
whatever it is, activity. And so I don't spend time after class Mm. finding out more about a student or uh, getting any information. So I navigate through the retreat. Like I sit at a different table every meal, you know, so I'm meeting everyone. Uh, Even if there's a group of girls that I know or a couple that are clients that I see that come, I do my best to just have dialogue with people that I wouldn't have dialogue with and learn a little bit about more about why they're passionate about yoga or what draws them to the mat. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. So you do, you get to know people a little bit better and you kind of act as a host, like making sure that you talk to everyone the way you do like at your wedding. (laughs) That's what that reminds me of. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I feel like that weekend is I'm on, I'm on that weekend from, from the minute I arrive, uh, until the, the I depart, mm-hmm. I'm on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for teachers who are new to teaching, like let's say just a year or two of teaching under their belt and they've only led, you know, 60 to 90 minute classes, how do they know when they're ready to teach a retreat? I feel as if for me, I felt ready when I felt like I had so much more information to share than just 60 or 90 minutes that I felt like there could be practices that complemented one another and that they, that I wanted uh, a platform that was bigger. Now for other teachers, I feel like if you wanted to get started on leading a retreat, I do think it helps to have a co-pilot it helps to have someone that you teach well with, that you complement each other, because it gives you a little bit of space to digest what you're teaching and not to feel like you're throwing too many ingredients at your students. Mm. And I felt like it was something that I was called to really teach in that way that I could support people in self-care in stepping out of their life and being steeped in another aspect of themselves without doing and being. And so for me, I like, uh, after my first retreat, I was like, okay, I'm ready. When are we going to do the next one? Uh (laughs) That's great. And in fairness, when things shifted and I was doing it on my own, it wasn't that we, my, the person I was leading with, we didn't get along or we couldn't continue. It was that something had come up for her personally for a weekend that we had arranged. And I was like, okay, I got this, you know? And, and then after doing one, I was like, I kind of got this. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so if I'm going to do the administrative side and I, and I feel like I have the energy to, make the weekend happen, I might as well own it. Yeah, totally. No, I think that makes total sense. Like you go in with a partner and then you kind of test the waters and do some experimenting. And then when you feel confident, you know, the two of you can separate and do it on your own. Do you remember any like disaster stories or, you know, I mean, anytime you put together an event, like something's going to go not as planned, let's just say. So can you remember anything that went wrong that you had to, you know, cope with in the moment or anything funny that's happened? Sadly, yes. <laughs> um, actually, my mom came on a retreat and a, a couple came on the, a retreat that, and they were situated near me. Their um, cottages were, and we unfortunately were by the septic tank that was oh, having issues. And the couple came to me really like kindly, like, I think we're smelling something that's not right. And my mom was like, I have to agree. And she'd never been on a retreat. So she's like, you know, I mean, this seems like a higher end establishment. And then I had to go to the keeper of the grounds. And then, you know, then it did turn out that they were having a massive issue And it was a real turnoff. In fact, actually, a couple of retreats later, that cottage, both of them were gone. Oh, my And um, And that couple, I moved them in the middle of the night. Fortunately, there was another cottage. So I moved them. And 
we still stayed friends. In fact, I married them. I officiated their wedding. So oh. it, didn't, it didn't affect our yoga relationship, but it definitely sort of was not the best thing to happen. That would put a damper on your retreat, like for sure. I mean, thinking about how, you know, when you go on your, your retreat, you want it to be like, you want all your senses to have like just relax and, you know, you want the food to be delicious and the sun on your skin and the temperature to feel right. And you want things to smell like a spa, not like a septic tank. Let me tell you, it was awful. And the worst part was, I think initially, not just the groundskeeper was there, but there was someone else and they were like, oh, it's not that bad. And I was like, when your client and your attendee says it's bad, right? The customer's right. So yeah. let's this. And luckily there was a cottage available. I mean, otherwise I probably would have had to give them mine and sleep with my mom. <laughs> oh, I know. No, good for you. I mean, it's true. Like Jason has the same thing when he does retreats. There's always like some little tweaky thing. And yeah, you would basically give them you know, your room, your yoga mat, your meal plan, whatever, when people come on your retreat, because you want it to be like the best experience for them possible. Absolutely. It definitely bummed me out. And yet I had to like wake up the next day and and be like, is there anything I can do to make your experience better? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think I probably gave them each a free private when they returned just to keep, you know, that, that, conversation open for them to feel, oh, okay, there's love. There's love. Oh my gosh. You know, have you ever had like food stuff come up? We, we often have, you know, and it's, it's funny. It's like, I did this little, a little, um, funny pie chart about it, like yoga retreat gripes, because they're just such like Cadillac problems. But we, you know, we had a year where like people weren't happy with the desserts <laughs> and that became like a really big deal. Like I noticed that people are really heightened about their food when they're on retreat. It's just like something for people to know that it's just, or, or, you know, if someone, if, if they're feeling, I, I also kind of feel like if people are going through, you know, like they're physically getting fatigued from the yoga or they're going through some like emotional transformation or something like it'll kind of be taken out on the food. I noticed that too. I totally agree. And the way I approach it is one place I did it, the food was so good that like people afterwards were like, best retreat ever, amazing yoga. How did I gain three pounds? You know, loving the food. And then I go to another place and food, not as great. And you know, oh, wait, we can't have wine with our meal. Mm -hmm. Yes. The question of whether or not they can have alcohol is always a big deal too. Yeah. Right. And so my philosophy is, look, when we go on retreat, we're really retreating from some luxuries in our lives. And yes, you can find the finest retreat and the best food, and then you're probably paying for it you're probably paying a lot. So I look to keep the retreat available and like at a nice sweet spot of a price point. And so if people complain about the food, I actually have an email that I send even before we go that simply says there is a refrigerator in your in your cottage. If you are a really particular person, please bring those foods that are comfort for you. If not, see this weekend as an opportunity to try something new or to use refinement and go, you know what? I don't need as much food. Yeah, yeah. And to see the food as taking in the energy. And for most of us, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but I know for myself, sometimes the hand is in the mouth before I'm even like mindfully digesting, gratefully experiencing. And so I really work with them to say like, if the food is a huge issue for you, you have a couple of options, bring your own, try something new. If that's going to be the reason that you don't come, I, I don't know how to be of better service to you because you're here for the yoga and yet you want the delicious, the yummy without overindulging. And I feel like if the food is too good, what happens is people overindulge. And then when we go to do yoga, even if it's a couple hours later, 
they're like a sloth, you know, they're like, Oh, that meal, it's just sitting there. Yes. That's the thing. The desserts that we had the year, everyone was complaining about the desserts. And if anyone was on this retreat, I'm not trying to call you out, but it was like the desserts that we had were all fairly healthy desserts. Right. So they were like, it would be like avocado chocolate mousse, not like a sweet chocolate pudding. You know, it would be like a very healthy kind of approach, but having a little bit of a treat. And I think when you're not used to that, it, it doesn't feel as luxurious like you're saying, but that is a very good point to bring up. It's that you want to be fueling your body for the experience and so that you can actually participate in and enjoy the experience as much as possible. And you're right. Like sometimes getting into that really indulgent food is not going to do, it's not going to serve you in that situation. And what is it really about? Like, what is it really about if the food has to be that yummy? Yeah. I have actually wanted, and this sounds a little crazy, but I have wanted to do um, like a warming meal on Friday night and and tinctures and juices on Saturday and a warming meal on Sunday. And I'm not brave enough because I know that it's a trigger for people. And yet there's a part of me that says, okay, when you have that bravery and you feel courage enough to do it, the people that want to sit with what the food is about will. Yeah. And if they don't come, then you know that that's not um, a visionary move for retreats. And that's okay too. <laughs> that's just not something enough people can get behind. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be like holding your feet to the fire. Okay, I love that you, I knew that you would be the perfect person to talk to about this because you're so thoughtful in the way that you do everything. I love the idea of like emailing people before to let them know, what's available to them food-wise if you do have a refrigerator in your room or and then what's not available i think that's that's like just such a smart small but like such a smart thing so let's keep talking about logistics for a moment so if a teacher were to come to you you know for advice for leading their first retreat where would you tell them to start like should they secure their venue first should they decide on their date first do you, did you like test the food before you went there? Or did you just talk to other people? Because I know you now go to the same retreat center each time, right? You go to Ratna Ling. I do. Uh, okay, so logistically, over the years, my retreats used to be Thursday to Sunday, okay? And that's a sweet spot, Thursday to Sunday, if you ask me. And yet, it's a very challenging momentum to get people there because for some reason Friday to Sunday works when they leave on Sunday, they wish they could stay longer, but Thursday, like taking the entire Friday off seems like a lot. And so because that was the case and I was seeing people sign up and then not showing up till Friday, I felt like, okay, I'm going to do Friday to Sunday right now. I want to make it so that someone could get in their car and drive and be there within two hours. And yet I like this last retreat. I always have some random people from Canada or a friend flies in from New York or Boston. A woman was here from Europe and those people obviously tag on other things. Hopefully one woman didn't, she just came specifically for the retreat. So I look at location I look at times of the year that work well for me and something that, you know, I've said to you before is often I do it on the fall and the spring equinox. Mm. That's just something I've done. And I add that into the ceremony aspect of the weekend. And then obviously price point and something to consider is like, how much do you have in advance? Because you cannot book a place without deposit. You cannot say, Hey, I'll call you back next week. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you have a huge enough following where in that week you can secure, you know, half of your people. I've never done it that way. Yeah. I don't think that's very common. Yeah. So, so I'm my own investor. I don't have uh, other people saying, Hey, we'll give you money to put it down. So like I have three retreats coming. I have 20% deposit on all of those retreats. Now one retreat is sold out. 
One retreat has a couple spots and the other retreat I'm not even taking people for now. I won't. Like, I'm just not willing to go there. Yeah. So it's a play there a little bit on have you stockpiled your cash? If you do it with someone else, does that make it easier for you? So do you get an option? I actually don't know this. Um, Jason handles like all of his admin, which I think shocks people, but it's true. Do you have like, so you put the deposit down and then do you have a period of time where if you didn't get enough people to sign up, you could get your deposit back or is that kind of it? Contractually, most retreat centers may let you change the date. Ah, okay. I don't know. I have not, knock on wood, (laughs) experienced saying, um, gee, can I have my 20% back? I don't think you can. I think it's sort of like you got to put your money on 21 black and go with it. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and, and that's how I look at it. And I do, I have to say for me, I kind of get quiet and I look at the calendar and I am a bit of like, when is Mercury in retrograde? Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) And I do consider those because I haven't in the past. And I think one retreat that I really struggled to fill it was. And I was like, hmm, you can say the planets don't affect us, but when there's a full moon, the tide in the ocean is strong, you know, and we are tidal beings. We are water made beings. And um, I think maybe that's where I'm a little hooey wooey. Yeah, so I, I, I go there too with Mercury. I, like, there is nothing like trying to get a magazine out the door when Mercury is in retrograde. Like, it was the worst back when I, like, every printer would break, every, I mean, every, oh, it was just crazy. There were, there were certain teachers who would not have their deadlines. There were certain yoga teachers who would not have their deadlines be during Mercury in retrograde, which to us sounded kind of crazy when we first started working there. And then over the years, we were all kind of like, hmm, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I agree. Yeah. And yeah. so I look at those things calendar wise and I consider them. And then, you know, I have three kids. And so I have to also throw in, it can't be during winter break. It can't be during, you know, this holiday or when the weeks are a half week. And uh, so that plays a role for me. If you're a householder who does not have kids, that doesn't play a role for you. And you've got a lot you can work with. Although the advantage to you having kids and having a retreat a retreat that's, you know, within two hours of driving distance to where you live is that you know the schedule that potentially other parents can't, you know, adhere to as well. Absolutely. I, you know, and I will say when my babies were babies, my husband would typically come up on Saturday and bring one and I would nurse that baby. You know, they would be like hidden. It was not... I, I wasn't the teacher who was nursing and teaching or the baby was in the room. I have no judgment around it, but my husband would be with the kid doing their do. And then I would feed and I would go back to my, I didn't want to draw attention to that because I didn't want to diminish from the, the energy that the group had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what about like the program itself? You've t- you know, you touched on it a little bit in terms of how much yoga you do versus other things, but do you have any advice for someone putting it together in terms of like, should the first class be two hours or should it be three hours or should you do, you know, vigorous in the morning and restorative in the, you know, like do, do, how do you put a program together? What I can tell you is by the third class, Saturday evening, no, no matter what you have done, people are fatigued. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if they are triathletes. It's a lot of yoga for people who have never done doubles in a day. And it's also a lot of quiet. Mm-hmm. And that is not to be discounted that when you are unitasking, when you are really single pointed and you are just marinating in nature and yourself and even hearing yourself breathe. And everything being served to you, there's a lot that goes on. So, you know, I have weekends that I've done from the ground up. Like we arrive and we really look at the feet and the legs, you know, and then in the morning, maybe we do an open hearted practice for the day. And then in the evening, maybe we're doing forward folds. And then by the end, we're doing twisting and arm balancing or it's weaved in there. Uh, one retreat 
that was all women. You know, they came to the mat on Saturday and I just looked around the room and I could just feel it. And I just blared like three disco songs, opened the doors and we had like a five, eight minute disco dance. And then everybody came to their mat and they could sit and they could meditate and they, they were ready. Yeah. And that's not how I run things. Like I, that's just not my personality when I'm teaching, when I'm at home with my kids. Sure. You know, 7am dance party anytime. And it was, it felt for me like, Oh, is this, is this going to turn people off? And yet something needed to shift. And it wasn't, uh, there was no more sage I could light. There was no more Palo Santo. Like people needed a push and their energy needed something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, uh, I just listened, I got quiet and I just said, this is going to, for some of you, this is going to seem wackadoo and for others it's not. So I do look at the flow and do my best to keep it moving in a, a fashion that feels organic and yet a little bit edgy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Two things. First thing is you are such a good leader. Like I even see this with you, with your kids, you have such a natural leadership quality. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that, but you totally do. So for me, imagining you like assessing the room for a moment and then turning on disco music is like perfect because I think you are really intuitive and a good responsive leader. So I love that story. I would love to have been there and maybe I will be there for another one. And then the second thing is, so you know how you said by like the third class, people are fatigued no matter what. When you first taught retreats, did you have to kind of get accustomed to not necessarily getting immediate positive feedback, you know, while holding that space the whole time? In other words, I'm imagining that sometimes when people are fatigued, like you really can't read if they're enjoying themselves or not. So I have to actually sort of get into an altered state before I teach in a way that's like this. This is not personal how these people are feeling. For some of them, this is the most they've been alone. And they're really digesting a lot. And the potency of the practice is stirring up what it's meant to stir up. And so sometimes I will sit there and all of a sudden I will, it's like, I can hear this sounds so crazy, but like I can hear Dharma Mitra in the back of my head going, it's time for yoga Nidra. It's time for yoga Nidra. And I distinctively remember on this retreat, we started our sun salutations. I was looking around the room. I was looking at the alignment. I was listening to the breathing and I was like, lie down. And everybody laid down and we did a full, beautiful yoga Nidra practice that like, I could feel the lightness and the shift. And if I had gone into judgment when they were doing the sun salutations and pushed, I'm not sure the levity of the room would have happened. And there was a guy afterwards who was weepy and was said, I didn't want to come back. Mm. Like that was the best call ever. How did you know? And I was like, I didn't actually, I didn't. Mm -hmm. And if I'm really honest, I had no idea. I just was quiet enough and I was listening and I just said, okay, I hear that that's what I'm being guided to do and I'm going to do this. And it could have been an epic fail. Like everybody could have been like, dude, I didn't get my money's worth. I wanted four strong yoga practices. And you know, there is going to always be two or three people like that. And those are usually the people that really need the yoga nidra. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, that's really true. And so even if they're a little bitter with baggage at me about it, I know they're going to walk away and go, hmm, let me feel that. Yeah, exactly. They might feel amazing the next day or they might sleep like a baby that night. You know, they might sleep in a way that they haven't slept in 10 years. Oh, everybody did. They came the next morning. Oh, wow, you were right. We did unpack something. You know, and I was like, I wasn't trying to be right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I want to support you all in finding your way to seek out the spots inside that you're hiding. Yeah. Yeah. You are a good caretaker. You are. Yeah. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me is take, is that's the approach that you take is like trying to assess, you know, the needs, the needs and like give them what they need, gu- like guiding them, right? 
because sometimes it might not be immediately apparent to them that it's what they need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you do any like follow-up marketing afterward in terms of, do you ask them to give you any feedback or like take a survey or anything like that? Do you find out what they thought afterward? So that's a wonderful, wonderful question. In the beginning, I didn't. And then I wrote up a sheet and I had people fill them out. And now I put the sheets out. I don't make it mandatory. I don't do a survey monkey because I find once people leave the onslaught of emails that they get, it just doesn't resonate for me. So I just say, I'm going to put these out in the morning. If there's something you want to share, good, bad, like something you think that would support in your experience, please feel free. You don't need to write your name on it. I would love it if you feel like you don't have anything to share. Don't fill the sheet out. I'll save it for next time. And I ask some really generic questions. You know, I do ask, how's the food? How did you sleep? What was, what was a pinpoint for you? And I, and I peruse them and I look at them. And yet I also know that some people are still in like a state of they were irritated about something or they were really elated. Mm-hmm. And just like when I walk away from teaching a class and someone's like, that was the best class. And I kind of laugh because that person the next week could think it was the worst class. You know, it's like, what's working for you today? Okay. I'm I'm happy to see that that's working for you today. So I take, I take those questionnaires and I look at them. And yet if five people say the exact same thing, then I go, okay, all right this needs to shift. Right. Right. Yeah. That's smart. So you don't look at necessarily the outliers you kind of, you know, or I mean, it's not that you don't look at them, but you can kind of, you look at if there's a mass um, response, like in one area, then you know that that's like strong, strong feedback. Right. If there's one person who continues to come on retreat and yet every time is like, there weren't enough handstands, dropbacks, you know, I go, okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. You know, and and then I look around the room and people are just struggling to do half bridge, right? They're just like, so I have to serve a menu that has enough nourishment for everyone and isn't too spicy yeah, and isn't too bland. And that's, you know, and I do offer over and over, like, if you want to pepper your practice a little more, if you have a strong practice and you want to handstand before you land Uttanasana, yeah, you go girl. You know what I'm saying? That might not be right for your neighbor. Yeah. Offering the options. Yeah. Yeah. I think that forever probably remains the trickiest thing about being a yoga teacher is teaching to, you know, all levels at the same time and all ages and all, you know, inner turmoils and challenges and desires. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else that you want to add? I feel like this is a really, really good, helpful little, little talk for people to listen to. Is there anything that I missed that you can think of or anything you, you want to add? I would just say that if you approach guiding of retreat from a real reverent place, and a place of being of service, you really can't like go wrong. You know, it's when I get there, it's not about me while I'm, you know, in some sense in the middle of the day, a little bit like a whirling dervish because I'm making certain everybody's got their sweets, meaning, you know, taken care of. I also feel like deep down what I want for for all of these people is to get a window into a deeper conversation with themselves. And, you know, I'm using the platform of yoga because I love yoga. Cause like I've been crushing on it for, <laughs> you know, 22 years, maybe longer. And so I use that because that resonates for people. And yet I know there are people who walk away from that weekend and the yoga is great. And there's something else that shifts for them. They become a better parent. I have one woman who comes all the time and the shifts that I have observed in her, you know, I'm not going to attribute them to the retreats and yet she will. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. She will say, even in her relationship, that wherever she's at, 
her relationships see the benefit of the retreat. And something I really talk about coming on retreat is remember all the people who supported you in coming on this retreat, especially if you're a householder. And when you have your reintegration period, remember your peace, because when you come home and the house does not look like the way you left it, if you get into a tizzy, the retreat didn't work. Yeah. If you walk in and you say thank you to all the people who supported you and you let the dishes be piled up and you let the laundry be piled up for at least another day, then the retreat is it's it's working. You know, something is happening for you that wasn't happening that you've released from your story. And that's the funniest part, actually. Those are the most emails I get back from people is, thank goodness for that closing circle, because you're exactly right. I came home and boy, was my house like a mess and boy, was everybody tired and, 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 and yet I could go, thank you. Yeah. And that's what a retreat is about being able to really immerse yourself in a state of like gratitude that you get to walk away from your world and be Mm -hmm. totally. And it's going to be there when you get back. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's like all, all the messiness and chaos of life will still be there. But if you can just get in touch for a short period of time with just going inward and like finding whatever quiet exists within you, you, you return to your life with a different perspective. Yes. And I would say, you know, one thing, one aspect of the retreat that I really incorporate is beautiful words. I read poetry. I do talk about the benefits of like lighting sage, clearing your home, creating sacred space. I talk about how my mat is out next to my bed. And, you know, there really is no excuse for you not to pull a nugget from the retreat into your life so that every day you can have that kindness, that self-kindness. Yeah. That's really smart. Like kind of, yeah. Giving them a little window into how to bring it back to their day to day. Yeah. I I feel like I feel strongly about that. Even when I've gone on meditation retreats, right? The best silent meditation retreats are the ones where I leave with a little nugget to myself and I go, okay, I came for this reason. And yet this is what I took away from it. And yet I, I might not need to go anywhere. I just need to keep at that target of quiet, that target of slowness, that, that target of it's okay when it looks not the way I thought it was going to look. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Thank you, you so know, because, much. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I love you. I love you too. I love you too. So much. Thanks, as always, for listening, everyone. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 33. And I will put links up there to Bex's website and her yoga anytime classes. And I will also put a link to that uh, those few paragraphs that I read from Sarah Powers. Jason's got an annual uh, retreat that he does. It's a week-long retreat in Maui, and he just announced those dates. It's October 4th through 11th. You can find more information on our website at jasonyoga.com. Whatever you do, just plan some retreat time for yourself this year and enjoy it. And until next week, enjoy your practice.